You know a worship song is really good when both the drummer and the bass player are singing along. Oh, that's when you know it. That's when you know it. I love that song, Amazing Grace, that, uh, that old verse that got discovered a few years ago that we, we sing along with it as well. It's fantastic. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're a little bit new to Bible study, find your way over to the second part of the Bible, which is the New Testament. John is the fourth book that you'll find. Matthew uh, is the first gospel. The fourth gospel is John as we continue to kind of work our way through. Uh, over the last number of weeks, we, uh, we saw this one particular long passage about Jesus doing a miracle where He fed uh, 5,000 men and all of their families. Jesus then walks on the water in the middle of a storm to go out and get His apostles, His disciples that are in a boat trying to get across the Sea of Galilee, and then the people that He fed, they come across the sea as well because they want to uh, hear uh, more from Him, and really what they want is they want more from Him. They, they want to get their bellies filled again. And so here in John chapter 6, this really long chapter, I, I want to pick up the, the, the tail end of all of this story here in verse 60 and work our way to the end of the chapter to talk about the idea of, uh, of are you going to desert or are you going to desire the Lord? Uh, so let me pick up here in John chapter 6, verse 60. Is that, it says, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, and I'll describe what it is that they heard in a second, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man, this is a thing that he calls himself, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, talking about the twelve apostles, Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Let me pray again for us. Father, we pray that what we do not know that you'll teach us, what we do not have that you will provide for us, and what we are not yet that you will make us so that we will look like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we begin with this first idea, one of four ideas I want to hand to you this morning. The first is that the hard teaching of Jesus reveals if we are people of the flesh 
or of, uh, of the faith. Uh, this hard teaching that Jesus has given, this is what uh, the crowd refers to it as, that this is a hard teaching that you've given to us, Jesus. Now, if you took some time and you went back to the beginning of John chapter 6 and read from the beginning of John chapter 6, those first 59 verses, you would see what this hard teaching of Jesus is that he is teaching this big, gigantic, enormous crowd of, uh, I would say, at least 15,000, maybe upwards beyond that, that he is teaching them that he is the bread of life. Now remember, when he first met all of them, they had all followed after him, and they were just hungry, so he miraculously provided food for them. And then the next day, they're still hungry, so they come across the Sea of Galilee looking for him because they want their bellies filled again. And Jesus goes through this long teaching to them, trying to get them to understand that he's not just the one who can give them bread and fish to eat for lunch or for dinner, but that he himself is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And he said some very revolutionary, some very radical things where he uses the imagery of, of, his, of his body being the bread and his blood being the wine in order to help the crowd to understand, I am going to be the sacrifice that you need in order for your sins to be paid. I am going to be the sacrifice so that you can have life. This hard teaching is that he's the bread of life. He's the one thing that will be the source of life. But then he describes himself as the bread of life that has come down from heaven. He, he reflects this in the passage I just read. He said, you know, would you believe me if you saw the Son of Man ascending back to where he came from? And the fact that he has descended from heaven is this sign that he's the one who's got divine authority. So he's got the, he is the one who has the divine authority source of life spiritually, and he is also the one who has the divine authority to grant that life. Now, they say this is a hard teaching. Well, it's hard because Jesus is claiming to be the source of life with divine authority. It's hard. to Their, their, their minds are spinning around this idea at the moment. What do we do with this Jewish rabbi guy that we know his mother and his father, we know his siblings, we know where he grew up, and yet here he is telling us that he's got this divine authority. But it's not necessarily hard because of the content. It's hard because of who we are, not necessarily who Jesus is. It's hard because he's saying, I've got life and I've got authority. And it's hard because we like having our own authority. We like making our own decisions. Uh, we, want, we know what we want our life to be about. And we want to hold on to the authority to make our own decisions. We don't want somebody else, you know, muscling in to tell us what to do with our lives. But with Jesus... There is no time for spiritual consumerism, and there is no room for religious entertainment. Uh, this is not what we do with Christ. It, it is not that we just, you know, come to, come to Him and, and Jesus, will you just fill our bellies? We just want to be religious consumers. Uh, we just want you to give what to us what it is that we demand of you. We want what we want nor is it time to be religiously entertained. Jesus, we just want to unravel you like you are a little mystery box. We've got a little spiritual curiosities that we want to figure out about you. You know, we, we need to be entertained. You know, the hard teaching of Jesus, 
when He gives it to you, is either going to cause you to reject His priorities or reset your priorities. I mean, this is what the hard teaching of Jesus does. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that has come down from heaven, I'm the source of life with all the divine authority, you, when this teaching comes to us, it, you, either, you have to make one of these choices. You either reject His priorities of who He is, or you reset your priorities because of who He is. And so as a church, we have to make sure that we collectively don't give in to the temptations that what we're going to do is just sanctified babysitting for preschoolers and kids over here across the, uh, across the courtyard in another building. We have to make sure that we're not just here to religiously entertain and figure out, you know, what is it that teenagers and men and women and seniors and young professionals and married couples want, do the right song and dance so that everybody will be impressed by us. But rather, it is that Jesus has this teaching that, that humanity deals as hard. We, we've decided that this is hard. And, and so we have, to, we have to contend with this teaching and not give in to the, the, the lesser angels of our nature to just see, well, what can we do in order to kind of soothe the savage beasts of our consciences? Uh, you know, what is it that we can do to just kind of clear out the cloudiness of what we don't understand philosophically? But instead, know that this hard teaching of Jesus is going to reveal whether or not we are people of the flesh or are we people of the faith. As a church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. That's why we're here. We want God to be famous. We want Him to be a really big deal. We want people to know about who He is. And so we exist in order for people to know who God is, and we do that by making disciples of people. We invite them into what humanity normally decides is a hard teaching that Jesus has claimed that He's the source of life and He is the source of all divine authority. But we want to empower you to live as people of faith, not people of the flesh that just chase after the next curiosity in your life. So what is it that we see in this crowd of people that we see in ourselves as well? Well, that's the second idea I want to hand to you, and that is that the, the natural reaction of people is to complain and doubt. This is the natural reaction that we have, is that we complain and we doubt. If, if you're not so sure that what I just said is true, uh, you just fulfilled the last word of that sentence, okay? Um, if you don't like what I am saying, you, you, you fulfilled another part of the sentence. When we deal with Jesus' hard teaching that He is the bread of life come down from heaven, and He describes Himself as the one who is going to sacrifice His flesh and He's going to give His blood, the natural inclination of the human heart is to complain and doubt. The crowd's reaction was a fleshly complaint because they showed up wanting more bread. They showed up hungry. You remember from last week, what, what I talked about is that they came up, when, when they finally figured out that Jesus was here for more than just baking bread and, and, and distributing it to large crowds, 
then they used the best part of their religious imagination. They said, oh, well, if you're here for more than just physical bread, how about that heavenly bread that Moses and all the Jews got while they were in the Exodus, you know, a few thousand years ago? Could we have that miracle bread, you know, that heavenly bread that was on the, on the ground every morning when they woke up? And Jesus is still trying to help them to see you're still not getting it. There's still something more. And so we think that this is a hard teaching. But I, I want you, to, I want you to, to come along with me with the fact that this, is, this teaching is not hard to understand. This teaching is hard to accept. All right, let me say that again, because I'm going to let you amen me really good in just a second. <laughs> this teaching is not hard to understand. This teaching is hard to accept. That's where we are. It's that we get it. We understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that He is the one Lord. He's the one Savior. He's the one way to life. He is God come down out of heaven. We understand that. We understand His claim. It's the acceptance part where we stutter step and hesitate in our lives, letting Him have full control. I want you to hear me clearly, so I've put this long statement up on the screen. We are not a somewhat satisfied people who need to know more stuff or a somewhat spiritual people who need to know more things. We are a completely dead people who need life. But, but the world convinces itself that we are kind of satisfied, and if we just had more stuff, life would be okay. And the world convinces itself that we're pretty spiritual. We just need to figure out a couple more riddles, and, and then we'll be okay. But Jesus is communicating to them and to us, the reality is without Him as the bread of life, we are utterly, completely, hopelessly dead. And we only find life in Him. And for those of us in the room that are already Christians, that you've already found life in Christ, then you cannot fall into a pattern of becoming a functional agnostic or atheist after your salvation where, whew, I'm glad that's over and I got over the threshold from death to life, glad I'm not over there anymore, and then just live your life the way you want to. No, now it's this great journey of living life with Christ as your source. A really good friend of mine who is a pastor in North Carolina said in a sermon recently, he said, salvation is surrender, but sanctification is warfare. Amen. I mean, sal salvation is the surrender of your life, but the ongoing living of your life, godly and holy in this world, that's warfare. And, and so we, we have this natural reaction to complain and to doubt while Jesus is calling us to a revolutionary surrender to His authority. Now, why do we complain? Why do we doubt? Because we come to Jesus with our physical cravings and with our vain curiosities. Uh, we come to Him demanding like little petulant children that He do for us exactly what we've dreamt up in our minds is the best-case scenario for our lives. 
And meanwhile, Jesus has this beautiful plan for our lives. He has this powerful plan for our lives. He has this plan for your life where he's going to use you for his glory, for his kingdom. And it may not all be sunshine, daisies, rainbows, and roses, but he's got this incredible plan for your life where he's going to utilize you to glorify himself among the nations. And so we come to him demanding that our physical cravings be met. I want all of the temptations that I really, really like to be able to give in to them. And we come to him with these demands that I've got all these little riddles that I want to figure out on my own. And so if you'll just tell me this little secret sauce here and there, I'll be fine. But Jesus doesn't come to fulfill your physical cravings. And Jesus doesn't come to fulfill your vain curiosities. Jesus came to make, to make dead people come to life. And only the Holy Spirit can help us follow Jesus. Jesus himself says, the flesh is no help at all. Now, we, now, he says this, the flesh is no help at all. And we look around at the rest of the world and we say, yeah, because all of those people out there are so messed up. All of those people that we see on the news in those other countries that are protesting in the streets or lobbing bombs at each other, those people are so broken. All of those people down the road in that other community where addiction is rampant and where there are drugs and where there are gangs, those people are so hopeless and helpless. But when he says the flesh is of no help here, he is talking about you. He's not talking about those people or these people or that other group of people. He's talking about us. Your flesh, my flesh, is of no help here. Your godly mother, grandmother, auntie, whoever that person is that you've got in your mind, that was that one person that it just seemed like they just walked in godliness all the time. When I think about this person, I think of my wife's grandmother that we called Nita, Nina. Nina was just that woman that every, everybody should be like Nina. Everybody should be like Juanita Martin. Everybody should live a life like that lady did. I mean, she was godly, she loved people, she took care of people. And as, and as romanticized of the memories that I have of who Nina was, as godly as she was, even for our Nina that we love so dearly, her flesh was of no help to following Jesus. As godly as she was, she still daily moment by moment, had to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit alive in her because our flesh fails us constantly. Its natural reaction is to complain and to doubt. Our natural inclination is to be physically satisfied and mentally justified in this life. That's the natural inclination of your flesh. That's what your body and your mind wants. It wants to be physically satisfied and mentally justified in what it thinks and what it wants. That's who we are. The problem is, is we're not willing to admit this. We, we want to say, no, 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 that's not me. Come on, Philip, you've met me. I'm okay. Like, I'm, re I'm trying really, really hard. And I want you to know that just like in your life, it's the same in my life as it is in all of our lives that our minds and our bodies are going to betray us. They are not naturally inclined to follow Jesus and find life in Him. Not prior to your salvation, not after your salvation. It is a war your whole life that you need the power of the Holy Spirit alive in you, drawing you into the will and the ways of God. Which is why, number three, 
Jesus calls us to faith. This is the constant call within the Scriptures, is calling us to faith. It is the call that Jesus and the early church put out to people that were outside of the church, that they would come into the church and that they would believe in Christ for their salvation, that they would come into the family of God. They would come into the kingdom of God. It is the call that we see constantly through the New Testament Scriptures as Paul and Peter and the other leaders of the church are writing these letters to the early church, that we would be people of faith, that we would trust in Him, that we would not trust in the stuff of earth provided by Him. And there's a lot of great stuff on the earth provided by God. I mean, there's a, I mean, it is amazing the fact that ice cream tastes as good as it does. There's no evolutionary reason why ice cream needs to taste good. That's a gift of God. Chocolate is a gift of God. Amen? Yeah, that's going to be the biggest amen I get all day. There's all sorts of great stuff on the earth. There's no reason why the sunset at, at Holmes Beach has got to be as beautiful as it is, except for the fact that God is good to us. There's no reason why you know, all of these good things on the earth have to be here except for the grace and the mercy of God because He's good to us. But those are all signposts pointing toward the God who made them, the God who provided them, the God who created them. And our work, the work of God, is to believe in the one that He has sent. And Jesus calls us to faith. But meanwhile... Everything about the human condition focuses on personal survival. But everything about the call of God focuses on abandoning self. That's the big dichotomy. That's the paradox. That is the beautiful tension that we get to live in. The human condition wants to survive. That's what we want. We want to make it from day to day. We want to somehow make tomorrow better than today. We want to make sure that we don't make the mistakes of last week. We want to survive. We want to get to the next place. We want to thrive. But everything about the call of God to put our faith in Him is about abandoning yourself. And the Holy Spirit is leading you to both satisfaction and justification in Jesus. You see, we want to be physically satisfied and mentally justified in what we want and in what we think. And the Holy Spirit, meanwhile, is, find, is helping you to find your satisfaction and your justification in the Christ who died for us. So at the beginning of this passage, there in verse 60, all of this big crowd says this thing. They ask this question. This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Interestingly, before the passage is over, somebody answers that question. There in verse 68, when Jesus has said to the twelve apostles, do you want to leave too? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. When the crowd asks the question, who can accept it? Simon Peter answers, who can accept it? a person who's desperate for grace. That's who can accept this hard teaching, that Jesus is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. The person who will accept that hard teaching is the person who's desperate for grace. Where are you in the level of desperate? 
for God's grace. The reason I think that Simon Peter could answer this question this way is because how Simon Peter came to know Jesus. When you look at the the early stages of the gospel letters, uh, there's three places where Peter has interactions with Jesus prior to being a full-fledged member of the, of the you know, kind of missionary you know, guys that are going to be with Jesus throughout his ministry. In John chapter 1, uh, earlier in this year we covered this passage, John the Baptist is walking along and he's got two of his disciples with him. And he sees Jesus and he cries out, Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those two disciples of John leave John to go follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he says, what are you guys looking for? And they ask him, Rabbi, do you have a place that you're going to stay tonight? If Essentially, they want to know where he's going to stop and where he's going to teach. And he says, well, come on and I'll show you where I'm going. And it turns out that one of those guys was, uh, was the brother of Simon, Peter. And then we see later on that Simon and his, his brother are out fishing, and Jesus walks along the seashore, and, and he, he tells them, he asks them if they've had a, a good night of fishing, and they say no, and he says, well, go on back out in your boat and put your nets on the other side of the boat, and you're, you're going to have a miraculous haul of fish, and they do, and, they, and it happens, and they come back in, and, and he tells them, no longer are you going to be fishers uh, like normal, but you're going to become fishers of men. He redefines Peter's trajectory of life. And then in, in Matthew chapter 10 is the place where Jesus specifically sets aside these 12 men to become apostles. Peter has a, an encounter with Jesus where he finds out that he's the Lamb of God. He has an encounter with Jesus where he resets his thinking about what life can be about, and he has an encounter with Jesus where he is commissioned into the mission of the very kingdom of God. And all of this took a tremendous amount of faith on Peter's part to allow his entire life to be redefined by this rabbi, by this guy that everybody knew where he was born and everybody knew where he grew up and everybody knew his mom and dad and everybody knew his family. And yet here he has, com- he has completed these, mirac- these miracles that have proven that he really is the one with divine authority. And so Jesus calls us to faith. So what is this going to mean for me and you today? Well, it means that the call of God is not really hard because it takes great effort. It is hard because it requires absolute surrender. This is why this is a hard teaching. God is not calling you today to give all of your effort. He is calling you today to give all of your heart. He's calling you today to to throw yourself fully into the belief and the faith that He is the one who has bridged the gap. You and I keep trying to build bridges and ladders and cross beams and try to get from where we are to where He is. We, we keep trying to get from uh, brokenness and sinfulness and, and, and a busted up life to something that's whole and complete and meaningful. And, and basically, we keep trying to swim the river when Jesus already built the bridge. And so, He is not asking for you to give all of your effort. He's asking you to to come into an absolute surrender. 
You're going to have to surrender in faith to repent and believe. You're going to have to give faith with the idea that I want to walk away from the sin and the rebellion of my life. I want to walk away from all of those evil acts that I commit that are little white lies all the way to the, the way that I ruin other people, uh, the way that I you know, kind of do my own thing to the ways that I just absolutely shake my fist at God and, say, and dare Him to do anything about it. I, I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe in Jesus who died on the cross in our place for our sins, uh, physically dead, buried in the tomb, and then victoriously rose from the dead, showing that He was the victor over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He is calling you to surrender in faith to Him that if you put your faith in Him, you will have life. You're going to have to surrender your physical cravings for sin. You see, we don't drift into godliness, we drift into ungodliness. Uh, we, we have to set our faith and surrender our hearts to the work of God in order for Him to make us to look like Him. And so you're going to have to surrender your physical cravings for sin. But I really like that thing. I really like that experience. I really like being able to hide that from other people and, and, to, and to get you know, my, all of my emotions revved up on that. I like having my anger and my bitterness. I like being selfish. I like my lust and my anger. I like my jealousy. I like it. And you're going to have to surrender your physical cravings for sin. Ultimately, you're going to have to surrender, and I say this to my friends that are in the room this morning that are saved. You're going to have to surrender your life to the work and the will of God. The work of God is described to us here in John chapter 6, verse 29. The work of God that you believe in the one He has sent. The will of God is described there in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. Surrender your life to the work and the will of God. Stop piddling your life away with collecting seashells and your hobbies and spending your money on things that are going to rust and rot and never last. But instead, surrender your life to the work and the will of God, which is to help everybody on planet Earth know who He is. There are still over three and a half billion people on this planet that don't have a good gospel witness in their life. There's probably more than 100,000 people in our county who have never actually had a good gospel witness in their life. One of your neighbors is probably that person. And so this morning, I want to lead us in a time of prayer where we can make that surrender to Jesus. And your surrender might be that you need to surrender your heart and your life. You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ so that you can have salvation, so that you can be saved, so that you can be forgiven of your sins and be brought into the family of God. Your surrender might be that there is a particular sin in your life or group of sins in your life that you need to surrender your physical cravings for those sins and ask the Holy Spirit to help you and to be empowered to work in you. 
Or it could be that it is time for you to surrender your life to the work and the will of God, that you know He called you to a ministry to work inside the life of the church or outside the life of the church, that you're going to commit everything to it. So let's have a moment of surrender. Let's pray together. Will you bow your heads with me tonight? Just as, as we remain seated this morning.